0: we'll We'll talk you know during the uh, paid portion of this uh, podcast where I advertise my game. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Welcome to season five episode five of Acquired, the podcast about great technology companies and the stories behind them. I'm Ben Gilbert, and I'm the co-founder of Pioneer Square Labs, a startup studio and early-stage venture fund in Seattle.
2: And I'm David Rosenthal, and I'm a general partner at Wave Capital, an early-stage venture firm focused on marketplaces based in San Francisco.
1: And we are your hosts. Today, we are talking about the company that invented the home video game industry, Atari. And we have someone with us who's got some pretty good stories about it, the founder of Atari, the father of the video game industry, Nolan Bushnell. Hello, Nolan. Great to be here. Good fun. (laughs) (laughs) Indeed. Thank you so much for joining us. As some of our listeners know, Nolan has started a swath of other businesses, uh, one of which awesomely is Chuck E. Cheese, which we will uh, get much, much deeper into later this episode. We dug
2: up some photos of young (laughs) Ben uh, last night.
1: Yeah, Nolan, I should let you know, I'm going to turn my computer around right now. Chuck E. Cheese was like by far and away uh, my favorite place in the world growing up. And uh, here's It was some designed
0: p- that way, you know.
1: <laughs> here's some pictures of my third birthday at Chuck E. Cheese. Uh, and there's me with my favorite toy, which is a Chuck E. doll. How fun. <laughs> now, Nolan, this is fun timing for us and for our listeners, uh, since our last episode covered the early days of Sequoia Capital and Don Valentine's career, which you had a lot to do with.
0: Well, Don was really maybe the best board member I've ever had. He was also the most frustrating and and infuriating. (laughs) You know, he had this ability to ask me a question about my own company that I didn't know. But the minute he asked it, I knew I should have known then. (laughs) And and so I started to cram for board meetings saying, okay, Don's not going to catch me this time. And he always would. (laughs) So I always believe that a proper
2: insightful question can be very instructive. Well, and that was, as we covered on our last episode, you know, down and the Socratic method, that was uh, really the root of,
1: you know, what he pioneered at Sequoia. So. Yeah. Well, listeners, our last limited partner episode was a deep dive into marketplaces from an academic perspective. On this show, we often talk about the levers at play in marketplace businesses. And as you would suspect, there are experts who have spent their careers studying and categorizing things like take rate, search and discovery problem, and when to subsidize. One such expert is Ramesh Jahari, a professor at Stanford and advisor to WAVE along with Uber, Airbnb, Stitch Fix, and many other great marketplace businesses. So if you want to listen and become an acquired limited partner, you can get started with a seven-day free trial and listen right here in the podcast player of your choice by clicking the link in the show notes or going to glow.fm acquired. For our sponsor this episode, we have ZoomInfo. ZoomInfo is an awesome business and product story that is totally in the acquired vein.
2: Totally. This is an amazing under-the-radar entrepreneurial story. Henry Shuck, the CEO of ZoomInfo, actually founded a predecessor company back in 2007 called Discover Org from his law school apartment. They were dedicated to helping sales professionals find the right contacts at the right accounts so they could stop digging for prospects and focus on closing deals. And then, in 2019, Discover.org actually acquired ZoomInfo, another big player in the business data space.
1: Yes, they kept the ZoomInfo name, and the combined company has grown way beyond just being a contact data solution. They've actually created this full-stack B2B revenue growth platform on top of it. It is super cool. ZoomInfo actually went public in 2020. They were the first real tech IPO after COVID hit. And they have continued to expand their product suite, and they've just done phenomenally well. It starts with the best business data in the world, whether that's company, contact, or intent data. And this data fuels Zoom Info's actionable insights, engagement platform, automated workflow capabilities, and so much more. It is the single best way for B2B professionals to find their next customer or close their next deal, streamline their operations and build the best team possible and best of all it is all in one place so your revenue teams can collaborate seamlessly and close deals faster so if you're
2: in b2b and you're wondering how can we drive more revenue and who's not how can we find acquire and grow accounts that are looking for our solution right now how do we make our sales and marketing teams as productive as possible how do we automate our go-to-market motions to both supercharge our growth and save money ZoomInfo is simply amazing. They now handle the full revenue pipeline from marketing to sales, even ops, all based on the number one ranked business data.
1: Yes, customers include enterprises like Snowflake, Workday, PayPal, Dropbox, Unilever, and thousands of startup and growth companies, 30,000 customers and counting. And here's something really cool. ZoomInfo is making their go-to-market playbook available for anyone to try for free, you want to find out how you can use intent data to target key prospects or how to revive a stalled deal by expanding your buying committee outreach. Head on over to acquired.fm slash zoominfo to see the ZoomInfo plays and just tell them that Ben and David at Acquired sent you.
2: Yes, definitely. And our huge thank you to ZoomInfo.
1: And now on to Atari. Yeah, let's do it. Nolan, you
2: were born in Clearfield, Utah, right? Just, is that just outside Salt Lake City? Uh, it's about halfway between Salt Lake and Ogden. Okay. Okay. We were talking a bit before the show about, uh, you're, you're, reflecting on how you became an entrepreneur. It started pretty early, right? With, uh, with strawberries. Yeah. Uh, can you tell us the story about your first business venture in Clearfield? Well, my
0: mother over dinner table said, we've got too many strawberries. We always had a truck garden in the back of the house and uh and she said we've got way too many strawberries we're going to have to give them away so happens the next day she took me to a grocery store and i noticed in the produce section they had strawberries in these baskets for 50 cents a basket i thought to myself self hey there's a market <laughs> and i went home i picked the strawberries filled the bath we had a bunch of baskets sitting on the shelf mm-hmm. in the garage filled them up and marketed them uh door to door the end of the day, I mean, this is an hour and a half's work. In the end of the day, I had five bucks. This is in a world in which my allowance was 15 cents a week. Wow. And so all of a sudden I said, <laughs> what, did, what did your family think of this? Well, my mom was really, first of all, she said, well, you, you took those, that money from our neighbors. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I said, no, but I provided
2: a service. They didn't have to go all the way to the store. Yeah, Yeah. You're like the Good Eggs of, uh, I don't think Good Eggs is down in Southern California yet, but uh, it's fresh farm-to-table groceries delivered to your door in San Francisco. It's wonderful. Jenny loves it. We use it all the time. Now, here's the question.
0: I've often felt that that changed my brain to say, okay, D-Link pay for hours Mm. into get a good project. Yeah. Or... Did I have a brain that was different to begin to see that connection between strawberries and a marketplace?
1: Yeah, nurture or nature, or- nature
2: or nurture, and and I can't answer that, but uh, but but you saw this yourself. I mean, your mom didn't tell you to go. Oh yeah, uh, start selling strawberries. Yeah, yeah you must've been younger than 10 at this point, right? I was eight. Wow. And then when you were about 10, you started a TV repair business. That's right. Right. Yeah. And that would, um, come in quite useful later, I would imagine. Well,
0: I'd always been kind of a techie kid. I was always curious about how things worked and that sort of thing. And I watched a TV repairman that came to our house. The TVs were big and bulky. And so it was all house calls. And, uh,
2: this was the 1960s? No,
0: no, this was
2: 1953. Wow. I mean, so you know, real bit, the TVs were like a piece of furniture.
0: Yeah, and and basically cost a month's salary. Wow. You know, so it was hmm. a different ball game. And uh, and I noticed that all the guy did was change tubes. <laughs> and so the next time our TV failed, I said, I'm going to give this a go. And of course, I'm sure it went great the first time. Well, I got a shock and, you know, there were various (laughs) things. I learned how to discharge the CRT because that, you know, it's popped up to 15,000 volts. (laughs) You don't want to do that. Entrepreneurship comes with risk. (laughs) Yeah. But, you know, in those days, the schematic on the back uh, panel, one tube was the vertical oscillator, another one was the first IF. And so all of a sudden I could tell which was. So if you had... A lot of roll that was the vertical oscillator, and if it was that, you know, and so just by looking at the screen, it was almost self diagnostic. And so I fixed it, and in doing so, I'd found a wholesale supplier of tubes. These are all tubes, this is before semiconductors. I'm, yeah, mm-hmm, I'm really old. This is know. this is before oh, yeah. <laughs> Fairchild, uh, yeah, yeah. And so I said, Hey, maybe there's a business here, and so I s- started marketing my skills. And at those days, a house call was, was five bucks. Wow. And So, so you I could said, spend all day selling strawberries, or you could do one house call for the same well, amount of- <laughs> No, but I didn't believe that they were going to let a 10-year-old kid get into the back of their oh. thing for five bucks. So I decided to, to charge 50 cents for a house call. Oh, you undercut the market. I undercut the market a long way. And my theory was that I would monetize a different way through marking up the tubes. Mm. And that worked swimmingly. It's Almost like a cartridge like in a, cartridge did a console yeah. business. <laughs> yeah. And then, then you know, a couple of months in, I started getting a, a, a reputation. So I went up to a bucket house call and two. So it was, it was a thing of market entry price. You know, you give a discount, and, and I had a, I
2: made a lot of money just repairing TV sets around the, the So, so this is pretty awesome. So, like, you're ten years old, you have your experience with. TVs and the technology going into televisions at the time. Then your next job, I believe, you get exposure to the game world. Is was your next adventure at Lagoon amusement Amusement Park? Actually not. My TV repair business turned into
0: a full appliance repair business and I became part of Barnell Furniture Company. And, you know, with that I would go out, I'd repair washers and dryers and and that sort of thing. And basically Barlow would be able to charge a lot more and I'd get half.
2: Hmm. Pretty good for a 10-year-old.
0: Yeah. Well, this was 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16. I continued that until I went to college at 18.
2: And you started at Utah State, right?
0: Correct. Got it. I was living at the fraternity house and I Started doing gigs like you know in those days, there was this thing, and and I always had money because I I saved. And You've I, been an entrepreneur. I was an entrepreneur. In those days, there was what they called twenty-five for twenty, and that means that a lot of the kids would get the check from their parents at the end of the month, and they'd be out of money by fit by the fifteenth. And so I'd lend uh-huh. them twenty bucks. But they had to get, <laughs> They had to give me twenty-five. <laughs> it's little, it's early. Twenty-five for amazing. twenty. Yeah. What's the APR on twenty-five <laughs> yeah. for twenty?
1: When did you need to collect it by?
2: Oh, oh. the fifth of uh, of the month. So they have five
1: that. days then to. Yeah. Yeah. Wow, wow. that's yeah. awesome.
2: <laughs> I can see how you got into the carnival business, right? Oh yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. It's it's an 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 I'm, a, I'm a carny. <laughs> <laughs> so you have these quite. I mean, at the time, they're like quite lucrative, especially for a college student business is going on. How well, I was
0: driving you... a, a uh, MGA <laughs> sports car and then later on <laughs> wow. I traded in for a, a Mercedes 190 SL. <laughs>
1: so were, wow. were you getting any funny looks from people that are like, how are you getting all that money to to buy cars like that? You know, nobody really thought about it
0: that hmm. much. I, I said, But then I did a, a really good one and this was called the Campus Company. And the Campus Company was a student blotter that had a calendar of events in the center and I'd sell advertising around the side Mm -hmm. and give it away free to the kids at the beginning of the quarter. Yep. And I'd sell five thousand dollars worth of advertising and it cost me five hundred bucks to print it and give them away. The part that I didn't know is that once you did that, I'd do it for every quarter. Mm -hmm. Everybody would re-up. So I only had to sell (laughs) a, a couple who'd fall out. So it was like nothing. So I went from Utah State to the University of Utah, to BYU, to Weber State. And so all of a sudden I had, I had- You had all un- the colleges four, in the area, yeah. All the colleges in the wow. area, 5,000 piece. And since I was doing the sales, when I'd go to a menswear place, I'd say, you know, you can pay me, you know, 150 bucks or, or I, I, I'll take a suit. <laughs> and,
1: and I got a moped. I got oh, wow. <laughs> I got all kinds of great stuff. Amazing! That's amazing. It's like the trading the paperclip for the house. Yeah, yeah.
0: Wow. So the reason I bring up Campus Company because that was actually the driver for me to get the job at the amusement park. Ah, okay. I was wondering why you needed the money to work
2: and work at the amusement well, park.
0: Well, it was a thing where I was putting myself through college at a relatively good lifestyle. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> I'll say. Let's put it this way. I am an undisciplined, disciplined person. That is, hmm. when it comes to short-term, I'm somewhat undisciplined. That is, a summer night in Utah, going out with girls and things, you can spend a lot of money. And I decided <laughs> that in order to remove harm's way, I'd get a fun job at the amusement park. Uh, it keep you off the streets. Get me off the streets. And it was, it, and that's why I say I'm disciplined in terms of long-term strategy, yeah, yeah. but undisciplined when it comes to <laughs> short-term. You have to remove temptation. You, exactly. It violated kind of one of my rules, which all of a sudden I was working for a paycheck for-, for uh,
1: Yeah, t- trading time for dollars. Trading time for dollars. But then I discovered
0: that in the games department, they paid commission when you did uh, above that. And so all of a sudden, I could turn this twenty five cent an hour job into a $2.50 an hour job, which was triple. Full yeah. Day. Yeah. Okay.
2: yeah. You're making triple, money that's
0: worth it. Yeah. And then because of the commission thing. Is
1: this skee-ball?
0: Skee-ball, guess your weight, knock the milk bottles down, mm. you know. Get the ball to stay in the basket.
1: What'd you make the most money on? Like, what were people just like, they just couldn't keep themselves away a, from? A
0: game called Tip Them Over.
1: <laughs> and it was a softball, and it oh, was a one yeah. throw. You always think that you can
0: knock them over. Well, you kind of can, but it's really hard. Huh? But it's it's perfect for marketing strategy. Hmm. Because the way the games worked is you were supposed to give away $1 for every $3 that you made. So you were to run your your booth at a 33 and a third percent merchandise percentage. The way the bottles worked, there were two heavies and two lights, and the two heavies were on the bottom and the two lights were on the top, unless you wanted to give an animal away. Then you'd put the heavies on the top and the lights on the bottom, huh. and then a small breeze would knock them down. <laughs> so, we had a dance hall and, and a concert venue. Yeah. And so people would come down with dates to go see the Beach Boys or what have you. uh uh-huh. The high school kids, they'd come in clusters. And there'd be the captain of the football team and the head cheerleader. And then there'd be, you know, Nathan
1: Someone like us in high school, yeah.
0: Nathan, the 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 water boy. Yeah, I was
2: captain of my high school football team. That's I great.
1: I was definitely yourself, not. I was at Chuck E. Cheese. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so anyway, what I do was when it came time for Nathan the water boy to throw, <laughs> I'd set a, a stack, and he'd win one for Marion the librarian. His state. Oh, We are so <laughs>
1: grateful for you. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and and it would it would turn. The worldview of the head of the football team, yeah, upside down, <laughs> and so I could extract all the money he had because he wasn't going to let the oh my <laughs> the the, the uh, wow the head cheerleader <laughs> to go without a stuffed animal.
1: That's spectacular. That is amazing. it was diabolical. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
2: I'm envisioning uh, the pong uh, marketing strategy in the future in, in bars here, but. Was it after that summer then that you transferred to the University of Utah? Yeah. What happened
0: is once I got the job, there was actually a a gap year where I went to work for Litton Industries in aerospace and in a clean room doing guidance systems and things like that. You were studying engineering at Utah State. Correct. And then (laughs) when I was in the fraternity house, I decided that engineering took too much homework. And so I transferred over to philosophy, then to economics, and then mathematics. And it wow. was just really about being able to screw around and not do so much homework. I kind of got into it. I like the Carney life. It, it does get into your
1: yeah, bloodstream. Yeah, I bet.
0: But when they made me manager of the department, because I was good at it, and one of the guys, the guys that was the manager quit, and, and so I was chosen to be manager. I had 150 kids working for me and I'm 20 years old and had to train them and manage the the labor percentages right. and yeah. set up things and and I started changing the games to increase the revenue. A lot of times when the park was packed we were under-gamed. The faster you could get a cycle time the uh, more money you could Yeah. Make. Yeah. And so the lagoon had the highest per caps of any amusement park in the nation. So when I got ready to graduate from college, yeah, I actually had offers from all over. I had from Great American things like that where I could have stayed in the amusement park game business. Yeah. Wow. At significantly more money than I could have gotten as an associate engineer. Wow. Hmm. But I said, Hey, I've got that legacy. Yeah. That's that's evergreen. My Engineering degree is not going to be that way. Mm. I need some experience. I need yeah. to go. What it is.
2: So, so let's talk about that. When you get to the University of Utah, the University of Utah at this time is like an amazing place in pioneering computer science and in particular computer graphics, right? Exactly. Uh, four,
0: four places in the world. Stanford, Stanford AI Project, yep. MIT, mm-hmm. Champaign-Urbana, mm-hmm. and the University of Utah which doesn't belong. <laughs> but it was really Dr. Evans, the guy who later founded
2: Evans and Sutherland. Yep. And for listeners, too, I mean, some of the other people who were there around this time, Alan Kay Alan was there, Kay. John Warnock, who founded Adobe, uh, Jim Clark, who had co-found Netflix with Mark Andreessen. Netscape. Uh, uh, not Netflix, yes, Netscape. Uh, and then, of course, Ed Catmull. I have to ask, was Ed there at the same time he that was. you were? He was. Wow. Yeah.
0: And I always thought that I was kind of the the cheap and dirty guy because I was doing games. <laughs> you were the and all entrepreneur. These, <laughs> all these guys were doing great tech. <laughs> <laughs>
3: uh, wow. Did, I, did you
1: know at that time, I mean, you say you were called the Utah guys. Did, did you have a sense at the time that this place and this group of people are sort of a, a special primordial soup of what would become the foundations of the technology industry? Or were you like, ah, Not a clue. these people seem smart, I feel smart, but kind of dirty and this carny, like?
0: Yeah, I, I, no, I, I had no
2: idea that it was going to be prescient. Hmm. Oh. I mean, it's pretty amazing that y- you have this, you know, we spent all this time on you growing up, but it's all three of these things, it's your entrepreneurial instincts, you learn management running the, <laughs> the amusement park, and then this incredible engineering and graphics environment that you're in at Utah, and all of those kind of we'll talk in a sec about what comes next. But uh,
0: I've often said that my life has been a series of happy mistakes, <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know, or serendipity. Because to add to that, when I went to California
2: and worked for Ampex, on and Ampex made recording equipment for like Hollywood and exactly. the music industry, and yeah, and so.
0: What I learned there was really polishing my digital skills and my video skills. Mm. So we had the big computers. I learned how to program, but the computers we were working on had a clock speed of 750 kilohertz. Oh boy. And the, the screens that were on the computers were all vector graphic mm. because raster scan wants 3.58 megahertz of data. And so if you're Computers going (laughs) at seven hundred and fifty. Now they had a wide address space, sixty-four bits. You know, so you could do
2: some serious calculations, but but they weren't fast at all. Yeah, ball on the screen or the you know space invaders weren't going to move very fast.
0: Well, what would happen is remember that the early video games were not von Neumann architecture.
2: They were basically
0: complex signal
2: generators, and and you had uh, you played Space War back at Utah, right? Correct. So Space War was the first game ever built for a computer, right? Absolutely. I built mean, at I, MIT, I stand,
0: right? I stand on the the shoulders of, of Steve Russell who who did that as the MIT Hobby Railroad Division,
2: and he did that on a. PDB How did it one? get traded around and end up? At Utah and other places around the country. I mean, it wasn't like you could just download it, it off the internet, right? <laughs> it was it was digital equipment, basically thought it was a cool hack
0: and just yeah. shipped it with every computer that they sold.
2: Oh, Whoa. wow. Cool. So every deck, uh, wait, was every there, were these deck. mini computers or were these yeah, They PDP.
0: The one that we'd used was a PDP 8 and a PDP 10. Okay. Uh, Utah did never had a PDP one, which is what the original source code yeah. was.
2: Mm-hmm. Wow! And so they shipped it. This was
1: it was like the the solitaire of uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, wow! With Space War, that's incredible. And so the, was it the first time that you saw Space War that you really realized what could be possible in creating this next generation of games? Well, I
0: managing the games department, I had a couple of arcades, so I knew intimately what a coin operated game cost and what it had to earn. And I said, if i had this screen with a coin slot, it'd earn a lot of money. Mm-hmm. But those machines but cost like a million dollars. Yeah, three, <laughs> you know, twenty-five cents for three minutes into a half a million-dollar or a million-dollar computer. Right. And the math didn't work. You're never yeah. going to recover
1: the
2: cost yeah. of the machine itself. But I went through the math and I said maybe someday. Yeah. And mm-hmm. then, so when you arrive at Ampex. This was shortly after like Fairchild had gotten set up and National Semiconductor, which we talked about on the square episode, so yeah. National then pioneered outsourcing fabrication of chips to Asia, and that dropped the price of chips hugely, right?
0: Yeah, one day I can remember sitting in my office at, at Ampex and glue chips, there was a thing called the 7400 series from TI and the 9300 series. They were basically glue parts, Flip flops and gates or gates, mm-hmm. exclusive or, all yep. all the Boolean constructs. Yep, and they went from two dollars a chip to fifteen cents a chip. Whoa. Wow! And so it was that precipitous. I mean, two orders of magnitude. And I said, maybe huh, now this is math the time. Might work.
1: Uh, getting it, close. It, yeah. Yeah. Huh?
0: Coincidentally, that Wednesday night in the Bay Area, I became a Go player.
1: Uh, Ooh.
2: Yeah.
0: And there was well, a.
2: We, I knew we were going to get into go in a minute. Well, there
0: was a, a go go being the the game go. Yeah, the game go. And there was a Buddhist church in San Francisco that had a twenty four seven go parlor. Oh wow, wow! And so I could just go up there and and, and I would generally this show. Nineteen like seventy. This was nineteen sixty eight. Yeah. And so I would go up. Probably 8 o'clock on a Sunday morning, I'd play until 3 or 4. And every weekend, that was kind of my go-to. But I was living in Santa Clara, California at the time. And uh, additionally, Stanford had a go club that met every Wednesday evening. And so I'd attend that. And I got playing with a couple of the go players there. And one of the guys was named Jim Stein, who was a graduate student working at the Stanford AI Lab. Hmm. And after we played Go one time, he says, hey, do you wanna play Space War? I said, holy shit, I haven't played it since I was in college. Yeah, (laughs) Let's do that. And so we left the Stanford Go Club probably 10 o'clock. Yeah, And we played, we went up to the AI Lab and played Space War probably until three or four this is i mean uh, my I'm wife sure you've was not this. amused <laughs> i'm sure you've heard <laughs> this
2: many times but like when i was in college ben i'm sure when you were in college like this is what you do you know like it'd be at night, like, it'd be like get back from dinner at the dining hall and be like oh well, yeah all right we're gonna play mario kart till yep. four in the morning like yeah exactly we're gonna play halo you were the
0: first generation that was doing this yeah and so that was i said you know those two Situations, the drop in the chip price and my reacquaintance with Space War were concomitantly the driver that said, let's do this now.
1: For folks that know of Atari, they're probably imagining the the, the 2600 um, or they're imagining, at the very least, something they're playing at their homes. That's not how it started.
0: No, it started as a coin-operated game business. Well, it and, started as G, right?
2: Correct. And...
1: You can't correct Nolan, David. <laughs> no,
2: it's correct. I think he knows how it started. <laughs> well, I'm just, I'm just putting it, wasn't Atari yet.
0: And so the original plan was that we were going to be a studio and we would design games for manufacturers and get a royalty. That was, that was the original plan. We got some things moving around on the screen. I went to the dentist and told him about my project. And he says, oh, you should call this guy. Which was the head of marketing for Nutting Associates? I didn't even know they were in town. Hmm, I, wow. you know, they were a, a coin-operated manu- coin game, game, game manufacturer in in Mountain View. Huh? And, and I went up and uh, and show them the game, and they said, "Yeah, we, we, I think we'd be willing to license this." They said, "But you know, we don't have a chief engineer now, uh, uh, and I don't think they, you know, the one we had would understand." This technology, are you available? And I said, I don't know. I'm pretty expensive. <laughs> of course you did. <laughs> so <laughs>
2: I I sound like such a carny, don't I? This is great. Uh, this is great. Yeah. Well, but, also, I mean, this is like um you you were I, I had in my notes we didn't cover. I mean, the people that were starting companies that we talked about on you know part one of the Sequoia episode at this time, like the Trader Essaid and the like, these are hardcore scientist engineering types, you know, usually in, buttons, 40s. usually in their forties, usually in their twenties. You were the first, I think real like hacker type entrepreneur. I think so.
0: Yeah. I, I've often said that I blazed the trail for both gates and jobs. Hmm. know. <laughs> You know, just proving that it could be done. Yeah, I right. mean, because they
2: didn't look like you know Gordon Moore and Bob Noyce. It's, it's <laughs> yeah. kind
1: of like the the five minute mile problem, where people say, "Well, it can't be done," and then someone does it, and then suddenly there's this massive wave after them of people that are awoken to that the world is accepting of young, brilliant twenty something CEOs, and boom, we have this wave of them.
0: No question about it. Yeah. Oh, but I got I got to finish mine.
1: Yeah, yeah, please. Yeah. The, so uh, you
2: had set up
0: Scissor Engineering, right? Yeah. And then I went to Nutting. I said I'm pretty expensive, and they said, "Well, how much?" I was making eight hundred and fifty dollars a month at Ampex. Mm-hmm. I said sixteen hundred dollars. Yeah. They said yes too quickly. Whoa! <laughs> oh, so you left <laughs> them on the table. And yeah. a company car. Yeah. yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> um, so how did that turn into what would become Atari? Then. Silicon Valley has a couple of things
0: going for it that are, I think, underappreciated. One is that almost everybody knows intimately somebody that went off, started something, and made a a gobsmack full of money. And they say, I know that guy or that girl, and I'm smarter than they are, (laughs) and I'm sitting here Doing nine to five,
2: and they're out making a lot of money. Yeah. I can do it. Yep. You know, it's funny. I, I, uh, I, I think I might have referred to this on the show before, but I went to business school at Stanford many years after you were there. But I think that was one of the most powerful things is like all these entrepreneurs would come talk to us, guest teach classes, be there for cases, do lunchtime events for us. And we just, you just realize like they're just people too. Like, yeah. There's nothing special about them.
0: But then I had a real advantage with nutting. Because nutting put the first computer space in. And all of a sudden you start noticing and saying, these guys are bozos. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you know, They're paying me $1,600 a month. I have a company car. <laughs> what are they no, doing? But, well,
0: they, they they fired the head of sales because he was making too much money on commission.
2: <laughs> now that is a real bozo huh? move. That's a really <laughs> bozo <laughs> move.
0: And, and so... When it came time for the next game, I said, I really don't want to hang my star with these guys, mm. Mm. you know, because they will underproduce, they'll, they'll nickel and dime things. And my theory in life has always been go big or go home. Yeah, clearly. And, and so when it came time for that, I said, you know, I'm going to have to leave and I will design your next game, but we'll do it under a contract. Mm. Little be known to them I'd already gotten a contract from Med- Midway and Bally. <laughs> so I had two contracts to based on.
1: <laughs> That's great. And so you were game designer were you also the sort of lead engineer on that first game uh, yeah. with them? Okay.
0: Yeah, I was lead engineer. I basically did all of the and that was digital com- stuff. computer
2: space which was a commercialized space war basically. Precisely. Yeah. Hmm. We come to the next chapter of Total Serendipity.
0: My first engineer, Al Alcorn, Mm -hmm. was actually my tech, and he was in a work-study program at Berkeley. And he'd do six months on, and then six months at Berkeley, and then six months as my tech. (laughs) It turns out that Steve Bristow was his alternate. Ah. And both of those guys, like when Atari came along, Bristow became head of engineering and Alcorn became head of research.
2: Hmm. They were brilliant engineers. They were really good,
0: but very different. Al was much more rigorous. That was his brilliance and his downfall. He would interview 30 people and not find one that was acceptable.
2: (laughs) Although, is he the one who brought Steve Jobs to you? So he, he found one who was pretty good. Yeah. Although not an engineer. But
0: but <laughs> then we'll get there. Uh, but Bristow, if you said, Okay, we need another twenty projects mm-hmm. and we need it in the next fifteen minutes, he'd go out, he'd hire a bunch of people, he'd fire some and what have you. I mean he was he would he was a
1: scrambler. <laughs> it'd be messy but it'd get done. It'd
0: be messy <laughs> but it'd get done. Exactly. But the first day that al came to work for us
1: and us being now this new company that with, is working with Ted on contract and I, with, yeah. yeah
0: was the same day that i'd heard about magnavox showing a video game at a trade show up in in burlingame yeah and so i went up and i s- saw this thing and it was an analog piece of crap and uh, uh, and i said gee, you know there's no competition here but i looked around and they were playing this ping pong game and it looked and they were having fun with it and, and, and there was so many things wrong with it. There was no score. There was no sound.
1: There's no score. Who's going to play that?
0: Yeah. I mean, not just that. After you hit the ball, you could change the, di- the dynamics of it with, by twisting a knob. You don't
2: get to change the name. Yeah. <laughs> <after> <laughs> you on it. It. You know, that's
0: just wrong on so many levels. Yeah. Uh,
2: so, so it was analog, though, like it was running on like vacuum tubes? No, there's RC time constants. So basically, if you
0: have a capacitor and a resistor,
1: oh,
0: it'll uh, change the voltage based on how fast uh, it is, and that gives you a delta V. It's
1: kind of incredible wow. that the early video games were actually analog. Yeah. Oh, oh yeah. Wow.
0: I mean, Ralph Baer, w- with these designs, were really important. The very, in fact, the very first game that predated Steve Russell's at MIT was an analog game played on an oscilloscope at the Brookha- oh. Brookhaven National Labs with a guy named Willie Higginbotham, huh. in terms of full history explosion <laughs> <Yeah, wow>. here.
1: <laughs> Always building on the shoulders of giants. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so you saw the Magnavox. You thought, thing's a piece of crap. Yeah, but I be said,
0: you know, using our technology, maybe this would be a fun game. But more than that, I needed a test project for Al, because mm-hmm. computer space was really complex. And I thought, you know, as a, as a learning project, What you want to do is bite-size things down to get people to understand the tech. And so I described the game and I said, that's your first project.
1: And no like design doc or spec. It was like, here's kind of how it's going to go. Yeah, this is a blackboard. (laughs) Yeah. Before whiteboards had been (laughs) invented.
0: And I said, you got to get it done in a few weeks because I think I can sell it to to General Electric. I might have told him, I've got to deal with General Electric. (laughs) (laughs) And and I'll be damned if in two weeks he didn't have a working Pong machine. Hmm. Wow. But it had some problems. For example, it had on the paddles angle incidence angle reflection, you know?
3: Yeah. So,
1: I, I read something that this was sort of Al's idea after what you sort of drew and described that, that he thought— well, it, it would be way more fun if we cut the paddle up into eight segments. And then each segment, depending on how far away from the middle it was, actually affected the sort of uh, the angle, angle that, that, it, yeah. that it bounced yeah. off of the paddle. Yeah.
0: Now, that's very interesting because the way I remember it, I came up <laughs> with that idea. But ah. <laughs> I'm willing to give it to Al. I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> well, who, uh,
1: who came up with speeding the ball up as, the, as play went on? Again, I think I did,
0: but, <laughs> <laughs> but I'm not going to opine to it.
1: Which is wow. another great mechanic because it means, number one, you don't really get bored of it because yeah. you can't just keep it going forever. Constantly ramping yeah. up the difficulty. And two, if you're collecting coin drop, then that's going to speed up those games and you're gonna get mo- more people flowing through. Precisely. Yeah.
2: So, okay. So before we get into what happened with this prototype, the name of the company, can you tell us how it became Atari? Which, of course, is a term from...
0: Yeah, oh. In those days, everything was snail mail. And mm-hmm. so if you wanted to incorporate, the standard way to do it was to put five company names uh. in case the first one wasn't, wasn't available.
2: Atari was actually number three. Oh, wow. So was one Syzygy?
0: One was Syzygy, which oh. was owned by a candle company in Mendocino. <laughs> <laughs>
1: And so this is with like the state of California.
0: Yeah. And I to this day I don't remember what number two was. <laughs>
1: wow.
2: But then number three came back, Atari. And what an amazing name, by the way. I mean, it starts with A. Well, which well, yeah. is great. You know, it's
0: funny. When we when we first got it back, we weren't sure we liked it.
2: And Atari is like <laughs> the equivalent of check in or checkmate in Go. Correct. Yeah, check is probably a good
1: Hmm. Close enough. So you didn't like it at first, or you weren't sure? Weren't sure.
0: Yeah. Which is really funny, because, you know, I really believe that, like Shakespeare says, you know, arose by any other other name. Yeah. Over and over again, I've named a company that has not sounded right. Two weeks in, it's the best name in the
1: world. (laughs) Yep. Yep. It's like uh, uh, how Phil Knight hated both calling the nike swoosh the swoosh and the swoosh itself and now it's the you know one of the top five most valuable brands in the world yeah exactly
2: well and this comes together with pong right because the amazing atari logo which we'll link to in the show notes if you don't you know have it etched into your memory as a as a child uh is is wonderful and you know it's a forms great... the a and the and the yeah. pong paddles and the
1: yeah how did how did you come up with the logo how'd that come to be
0: that was done by George Opperman, who hmm. was a brilliant, brilliant graphic designer. And I said, we need a good bug for for the company. He came up with 10, and I said, that
1: one. Wow. And I mean, truly, today, one of the most iconic brands ever created. Really? T-shirts everywhere and hats. Yeah. I mean, you, you can't go a week without seeing the Atari some, uh, somewhere in your it's life. It's
0: pretty, and it's, it's optimistic. It's
2: kind of, you know, upward-
1: we're driving this. And, and it was
2: the, the paddles from Pong that inspired it, right? No. Oh, no. <laughs> that's <laughs> that's <laughs> revisionist, mythologi- history. revisionist history. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> there we have it from the man himself. So, okay. So you had this prototype of Al Alcorn's demo, you know, prove himself project. And it turns out it's pretty fun, right? Yeah, okay. So I thought to myself, you know, the, my carniness said <laughs> <My second. laughs> your Carney instincts kicked in we, I, maybe uh, I, let's
1: I, let's rebrand Carney as incredibly entrepreneurial like we can keep saying Carney on the show but like we shouldn't deprecate this this is like a true. core yeah uh, you know personality yeah. trait of wildly driven scrappy entrepreneurs
0: yeah well I thought to myself so maybe <laughs> I can get bally to take this game and complete our
2: contract six months in advance because you weren't planning on this being the next game. This no, was just a yeah. test this project. Was throwaway.
1: Yeah. But if they're impressed and say, Look, well, here's the game. Maybe yeah. let's see what they think.
0: So we built up two and these were in wire wraps. They were gonna put one on location mm-hmm. and I got on the airplane with the other one under my arm with a modulator so I could hook it up to a local TV. And I went yeah. to Bally and Midway and they were not impressed. Hmm. And because in the coin op business There had not been a single successful two-player only game.
1: Yeah. There was no AI driving the
2: other paddle at this
1: point. So if there was just one person who wanted to play the game at the bar, like it was going to be a non-starter.
0: Which, in 2020 hindsight, turned out to be brilliant because it gave a woman an ability to choose who she played with.
2: Uh, The equivalent of... I assume at that time women weren't like buying drinks for men, but no, uh, but a woman could be like, buy a game of pong. Yeah, I'm. Uh,
0: you know, I want to play pong, but I need a partner. <laughs> so she pull somebody off a bar stool.
1: Wow. So I mean, it introduced a completely new environment variable into the bar, and and it was also concomitant with the hippie
2: female empowerment. Mm-hmm. You know, women are as good as men. Da da da. This is 1972, right? This was 1970- 1972. Yeah. Wow. So when Bally and Midway reject this. Correct. Uh, but you see the potential.
1: Would you call well, it a wire rig? The wire wrap. Wire wrap. And, and so I'd imagine that's no cabinet. It's just the electronics, The you know, however many boards are in there, Correct. wires, and then you hook it up to whatever TV you can.
0: Correct. Well, in the early days, when you were prototyping, there was a technology called wire wrap, which you'd had these pins sticking up. And you had this machine that would really wrap a, wire, a copper wire around it very tightly. So it was a very good prototyping system. Oh. I don't think they use it anymore. I'm not sure. So more.
1: basically, you wouldn't have to solder, but you no. could ensure that the wires were going to be where you thought they were going to be on the chips.
0: Precisely. Got it. But, but when you looked at it, it looked, it's like a nest. <laughs> <laughs> you know? And what happened is that when I presented to Bally, they were tepid. Mm-hmm. they said, let me think about it. Hmm. And when I called back to the plant, they told me about the earnings that it was making at the local bar.
2: So you would put a prototype in. Yeah. You
0: know? When I heard how much it was, I called up Bally and I said, Midway doesn't want it. And, uh, uh, and, and <laughs> you I you called up Bally. You mean how ba- much
1: money it was making at that bar. At right? 80 caps. <laughs> Yeah. 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 <laughs> wow.
0: And put it in context. The game was making over $300. A week and
1: that's like 3x what a normal game would make right oh yeah
0: and the bill of materials on the machine was 325 bucks
1: wow
0: so I said to myself there's a business here <laughs> <It's>
1: a, <laughs> there's a six-day payback on this assuming yeah. you get to keep up is it 5050 with the bar how does the revenue right, split it's work? 50 <laughs> okay.
0: okay. two weeks you're making two your weeks
2: back. you're making your money back so Whoa. now but did you charge the bars up front did they have to pay for part of the machine up front or was it just a revenue split? You got to put it there. Got got to put it there.
0: And I said to myself, hey, if I can't sell these things, I can operate them and be okay. Yeah. So I took all the money that we had in the bank and it was enough to build like a dozen of them. And then from there we got the money and and we sold some because people started hearing that this game was doing well. And so we went up to the San Francisco distributor and he ordered 10 and the guy from Los Angeles ordered 10.
1: Uh, I'm curious, what would the the Bally and Midway deals have given you? It it, it was, I mean, obviously they take care of manufacturing because they would make the actual cabinets and hook it all up. Do they also take care of distribution? Absolutely. They do everything. So you're then saying, you know what? We're so confident in this thing. We're going to tell these guys that in a nice way and in a a clever way that we're going to do this ourselves. And that we don't, you know.
0: No, I didn't say that we're going to do it ourselves. I said, we'll go ahead and finish the project, the driving game that you wanted.
1: Oh, I see.
0: Which, there's another chapter to this. Four months in, Bally came back to us and said, we'd like to do Pong.
2: Huh? And, and I You I already said, knew what a golden goose you had at yeah, that point.
0: Yeah, and so I said, "Oh, of course." At this time, there were twenty companies that were copying us because mm. you know we had a garage shop. Anybody the that had things a, change, more, any, <laughs> anybody that had a garage shop could knock these puppies out. We hadn't, you know, in those days, it took four years to get a patent. Hmm. We'd applied for it, but we didn't have it, and yeah. so you know it was it was the wild west. And so, Bally was really no- noble by saying hey instead of just knocking us off they took a license and paid us a 5% royalty
1: wow, wow. that's a stand up business practice right there
0: stand up business and completed our our, our
2: contract <laughs> wow <laughs> wow was it around this time that you started your experimental distribution channel of your own of pizza time theater within the company no that you're talking about key games, not Chuck E. Cheese. Well, uh, either.
0: <laughs> well, there was kind of the ball and paddle phase. Then we go went into what I call the game innovation phase of the company. I realized that in those days, the coin-op distribution network, there tended to be two, sometimes three in every major city. And it was normal to have an exclusive relationship. Mm-hmm. So... I could pick all the best distributors, the ones that didn't have an Atari deal. They were looking for anybody that they could put into business to compete with us, and I thought, that's perilous. So I decided to create my own competition. So I took the number two guy, marketing guy and the number two engineering guy and the number two manufacturing guys, and I had them leave in mass set up a company across the street or down the... It was actually another place. And it was just before a trade show and they had a game, which was the next in the line that we were going to produce. We let them put their name on it. We went to the trade show and they assigned their distribution contract with all the guys that we didn't have. So we That's had, great. we had the world nailed.
2: Wow. <laughs> and that was key games. That
0: was key games. And... In those days, you know, there wasn't the internet and all that, but we knew that you couldn't keep it secret forever. So we floated the rumor that these guys had stolen trade secrets and that we were suing them. (laughs) Okay, And then a couple of months later, we floated the idea that we settled and that now we owned a piece of Key
2: Games.
1: And did you own the entire thing from the get-go? No, the entire thing <laughs> from the get-go. <laughs>
2: oh, that's great.
0: And then we decided that we were going to merge the companies together.
1: Take a nice photo, shake hands, welcome the... Yeah. Yeah.
0: And then there was a question. Distributors, what do you want? Yeah. Do you, should we take the thing away or should we give you both lines? Yeah. And at that time... So
2: you changed the business
1: practices of in the
2: industry because yeah, they didn't want to give this up, right? Yeah.
1: So now... We gave both lines to both distributors. Wow. So you didn't have to have exclusivity with a distributor anymore. Bingo. Amazing.
0: Oh, that's so great. You know, it's one of those things that in the coin op business in 1975, we had an 80% market share. Wow. Amazing. Wow. And so it, and then it's going, so- going from nowhere, you know. We were undercapitalized and, and all that. G- give,
1: give us a sense of how many uh, cabinets you'd then manufactured from, what, 71 to 75.
0: Probably 300,000.
1: Wow. wow.
2: And each of those earning roughly a couple hundred bucks a week. Correct.
1: H- how'd you capitalize that, or did you manage to get pre-orders and have sort of a, a nice working capital cycle? Actually,
0: the business model... I'm more proud of than the technology because hmm. I built this company on each, my partner and I put in $250 each. That's the only capital that went into the company until Don Valentine in 1975. yeah. And so what we did, I figured out just-in-time inventory. So all the cost was in the cabinet, the TV set, the coin mech, and, and the power transformer. The glue parts for the computer and all that—it was a lot of numbers, but not but they a were lot of, cents of value. Hmm. Chip, yeah. So we could actually, from the time a cabinet came on the floor, we'd have the TV set and all the other pieces come in all at the same time, mm-hmm. and so we were turning inventory twenty-eight times a year. Oh wow, that's like Amazon levels. <laughs> exactly. So we were able to. Uh, Essentially, sell a product and have 60 days to pay for the the, the you had terms back, so from your suppliers. In, so the company operated in positive
1: cash flow. Wow. Wow. And what were the payment terms when you would deliver one of the units to? Uh... 30 days.
0: Okay. But we'd give a
1: 10% discount
0: for five days. <laughs> but then we found this factoring company that would buy our receivables. And so uh, I'd get immediate
2: cash. Wow! So what? Amazing. So you you grew to millions of dollars a year on no, oh, no capital, no capital. Wow!
1: Had you spoken with with Don Valentine or any other investors? And and um, to venture foreshadow- capital hadn't
0: really been invented yet. Yeah, well, Don,
1: yeah, invented it in a lot of ways. And from what I read, the sentiment around the time uh, sort of associated CoinDrop with mafia activity yeah, and, exactly. and gambling. Like, like, people didn't want to be involved in investing in this sort of mob-controlled or, or mob perception in, Correct. industry.
0: Yeah. Well, it was true. During the um, prohibition, the mob provided illegal booze, illegal gambling, loan sharking, and prostitution. Mm-hmm when Prohibition was repealed, they still had their three Hmm. trochea. And then the games modified. You know, in the speakeasies, they had roulette and slot machines and the whole nine yards. But when, all of a sudden, the speakeasies emerged from underground, they could easily identify the slot machines. And so they started disguising them as pinball machines, but they were payout machines.
2: They were gray area. Uh. So that's why pinball had such a negative stigma, exactly. not because of pinball, but because it well, a lot they of them were, dis- were actually slot machines. They were disguised slot machines. Fast, they were. Uh-huh. Hmm. Wow, the proto venture capital industry that we talked to—you know, the Arthur Rocks and the you know the folks that were uh, the Tommy Davises and like—they they weren't gonna. I, I'm sure. You, did you even talk to them? I
0: didn't know. Uh, I I hadn't heard of venture capital. I, uh, you know, it
2: was just. Wow. So how did you I was and, just young and dumb. How did you and Don intersect then? He came to visit me. He found me. I
0: didn't find him. Hmm. And at that point in time, we were in six buildings, and we were up about thirty million in sales. And
1: this is like seventy four, early seventy five, yeah. somewhere in there.
0: And so we were
1: kind of getting to be big shits
2: in the in the valley. Yeah. Wow. And, uh, and he had just set up Sequoia Capital, yeah. taking it independent from Capital Group. Now, you get, get this. He says,
0: can I see your business
2: plan?
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, listeners, I wish you could see the face Nolan just made. <laughs> business plan?
0: <laughs> we had no business plan. I'd been running this thing by the seat of my pants. He says, well, I'll, I'll set you up to, with a guy that can write your business plan for you, because I need it for, <laughs> for, for, for an investment, because I, I like your business. So I spent a few hours a day for several days with this guy named Don Yost, who wrote the business plan for Atari—the very first one we ever had.
2: Wow! And uh, when you're already doing thirty million in sales, yeah, I know. <laughs> Wild, different world. And when Don first approached you, was it called Sequoia Capital at that point yet? Or? Yes. Okay. So he had he had fully spun out from Capital Group, correct? And how did a deal get done? What did what did <laughs> did he offer? Or did you how did how did you? broached the conversation between the two of you of accepting capital to a business that had never had capital before. Well, to get the right patina on this,
0: we had the summer of discontent. And I told you how we operated in positive cash flow. Mm-hmm. That's all fine and good until you fill up your production line mm. with products that you can't sell because there's a part that's missing.
1: Uh-oh. Uh, what happened there?
0: We almost went out of business. Hmm. Because there may a, or may
2: not have withheld the part, no. <laughs>
0: there was a chip that we needed to get and it was on backlog for three months. And so one month in we were way behind on our payments. We got sued and three months in all of a sudden we, we didn't defend ourselves because we owed the money. And so we had these judgments against us. And so there were sheriffs on the front door, you know, coming to uh, collect uh, yeah, collect assets. Wow. What they really want to do is collect your from your bank account. Right. They didn't want your chairs and tables and stuff. And so what we did is we opened up bank accounts all over the nation. And so we would just go every week. We'd use a different checking account to pay our people.
1: Wow. <laughs> wow. Oh my goodness. Wow. Because you're trying to keep the doors open. You're trying to stay in business. You think this will get resolved and you want to keep your great people well, you know around. you know you have a great business them. too, yeah. right? So was it in this really tumultuous time when you did the deal with Don then? Really cool Yeah. We were damaged. And I
0: did a, a reorganization with all my creditors. And basically I gave them, I said, if you want 100 cents on the dollar, you got to give me six months. Hmm. If you want 50 cents on the dollar, I'll pay you in two months. If you want cash right now, I'll give you 10 cents on the dollar. Mm -hmm. And then I said, and if you sue me, (laughs) you'll never get an order from me again in our life. And then to get the line going again, I went to Jerry Sanders from AMD and I said, We've just been cut off because of credit hold. I said, but I laid out what, what the opportunity was and I said, I need a fifty thousand dollar credit line for your parts. And if you give that to me, you'll be my preferred vendor from now on. Wow. Who were you using for chips before? Were you using Fairchild. Fairchild, okay. And T I. And they were just jerks. And mm-hmm. um and Jerry said, Okay. Wow. It probably was worth 50 million dollars to AMD to be the prime supplier for Atari: yeah,
1: pretty good okay.
0: very good okay so then, I mean, we've been good friends since good guy.
1: Oh, that's great. So my understanding from doing a little bit of research before was that you effectively came to terms on what the investment would be from Sequoia during the time of of tumult and before correct the AMD agreement, yeah. but of course you hadn't closed yet and I hadn't closed you know, you're, you're, you're maybe a month or a few more months goes by, um, and you're getting ready to close the deal.
0: And we'd gotten much healthier. We, you know, all the things that we'd done, we'd fixed up things that we were shipping and all of a sudden we weren't under stress again. And so it became time to close. And that night I said to Joe, my, the president, I said, I can't do this. This isn't, this is not the right deal. Don had champagne, iced up in his trunk and he came out and I said, sorry, uh, the price isn't right. And I said, this is the condition when I agreed to this, this is the condition now, the
2: price is double. Double? Double. Wow, how did he react? Oh, he was
0: pissed. (laughs) (laughs) But I was willing to walk away.
2: Right? because you didn't need the capital anymore. I didn't need the capital
0: anymore. Two days later he came back and he said, okay,
2: <laughs> wow! Wow! What a story for the first investment. <laughs> well,
0: it was my relationship with Don was always a little bit love hate. You know, I could see that. You know, and because you you don't you don't dick with Don
3: Valentine that way. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. <laughs>
1: Well, oh, I've heard then that uh, board meetings could take place in hot tubs. You know, the, the, can you describe the Atari culture at this point? We talked about you as a, the first hacker archetype as a CEO, um, or I don't know if you called yourself a CEO, president, founder or that CEO. Point. Okay. What was the company like and how is it different than other companies?
0: I think to understand that clearly, you need to understand what was going on at the time. And we all had our hippie costumes that we'd dress up in our bell bottoms and our tie-dye shirts and go up to San Francisco and and be posers. Because <laughs> you, you guys were engineers. And we were engineers, but, you know, sometimes it was kind of fun to, totally. to go up there. And so there was this ethic, the the summer of love and all that that and you know don't trust anyone over 30 and you know smash the state and, and all that but what really was it was a an idea that you treat everyone fairly not based on history not based on legacy not based on you know who you were and, and what what you came but but what your soul was what your capabilities were and so we actually created this company manifesto or constitution and so we encapsulated equal pay for equal work very first one in silicon valley so we we felt and we had some amazing women that worked for us that were just loved the
2: whole idea that we had this manifesto speaking of the culture and the time i mean this must have been right around the time when this guy shows up at your office right yeah, jobs. Yeah, unkempt, dirty. He just walked in one day and said he's not going to leave until he had, got a job. And what was it? This like, I mean, you guys have become pretty big in the valley. You were well known at this point. Was it like this is Steve Jobs, of course? Did he want to work at Atari because he'd heard about Atari and heard about the culture? And yeah,
0: like- absolutely. And and you know he he liked the idea that we were doing something that wasn't bombs, wasn't. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, uh, military and, uh, by being in the game business, we actually had a real advantage because a lot of the businesses had some military outlook. And so if you were a foreign national, a lot of times you couldn't work for those. Oh, so we had our pick of the crop in terms of, you know, the, the Brits at the time had just wonderful engineers and Germans and, and what have you, from all over the world.
1: Wow. Yeah, and you had that you, a unique recruiting advantage. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, you not have. to mention,
2: you're in the Bay Area. The Vietnam had probably just ended at this point. Uh, but yeah, pretty much. I, I'm sure there are a lot of people in the Bay Area at this moment in history who were none too keen to be working for companies that were selling to militaries.
1: Yeah. I'm sure you've you've spoken many times at, about your experience with, with Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak. Y- you are one of the very few people in the world that were ever either of their boss. Right. How did that go? How how were they as sort of young, budding talent? And what are some of the things that they did together at Atari?
0: So I want to clear up this. Yeah. Wozniak never worked for me. He was always working at HP. Yeah. Uh-huh. And I put Steve Jobs on the night ship because I knew Woz would hang out with him. <laughs> <laughs> ever the entrepreneurial instance Well, I called it Getting two, two Steves for the price of one. <laughs> and You got an advisor. And, was an and, advisor. And Waz is and was a true savant. I think actually Waz doesn't get enough credit for the success of, a, of, of Apple hmm. because he could design discrete logic chips. I mean, he did the Apple II as a design construct was brilliant it was the most efficient articulation that you could probably was did it all nighter two nights in a row developed the drivers and the hardware to interface this floppy disk drive to the Apple II. took Atari seven months Wow and we had some smart people Wow Wow so those sorts of things for me, just gives me tremendous respect for for the man's capability. We had a deal where the engineers at Atari could bid on the projects. We'd give them a game list, and since we'd give a little bit of royalty to the engineers, they only wanted to work on ones that they liked. And I came up with this game called Breakout, and nobody wanted quiet it. Quiet success out in the world, Breakout. <laughs> well, the perception was that ball and paddle games were over. Uh, and this was a ball and paddle oh, game, but wh- with a twist.
1: What year was that? 74. Okay, so we're, we're two, three years after the amazing success of Pong. Right. Got it.
0: Might have been 75. I'm not sure.
2: But there'd never been a single-player Pong.
0: No. And it turns out that uh, Breakout was actually the game that, that launched the Japanese market.
1: For video games at all? Yeah. And so at this point... In seventy four seventy five, Atari had just started shipping home consoles. Uh, you had uh, 75, so 75, seventy five Got it. The the VCS
2: that became the twenty six hundred. Right. That was, that so many of us had. <laughs> yeah.
1: My understanding was you were the the sort of game designer and and uh, kind of visionary behind Breakout. This was a, a game that you'd sort of really come up with a concept for, and so you put it on this list for for different people to bid on. H- how does it go from there? They didn't want to do it. And so I put Steve on the night shift and signed it to him.
2: This is Jobs because he's, he's the only one that works. And for I him. knew that he wouldn't do it, but Woz would.
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> oh, amazing! Woz is not an employee of Atari. He's just hanging out with how's Jobs it, at night. How's the
1: IP work on that? It
2: was a different they were era. employees. Yeah. <laughs> Who knew? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Crazy! Uh, wow, and so Woz does all the technical design of Breakout. Yeah. Now, I did a deal where
0: they got a bonus based on how few chips they could use.
1: Yeah, so I read something about this, that the the cabinets typically had 75-plus boards in them, Mm -hmm. um, but it would save Atari like $100,000 if you could remove each chip.
0: Yeah, and that's absolutely true. And so, the Waz's design was like 40 chips. I mean, it was unheard of. Whoa. But it had sort of feedback systems that made it really hard to test. And so once the game was done and everybody could see that it was fun, they did a re But I paid the, the bonus based on the number of chips that came back, hmm. which was $5,000. And that was a lot of money in those days. Yeah. Subsequently. Waz was over to the house and we were talking about breakout and what have you. And I said, what did you do with your half of the money? He says, oh, I went out to dinner. And and I said, that's some dinner. That's some dinner. And he said, what do you mean? And I said, well, you know, I figured you probably ended up with 2,500 bucks. He shook his head. He says, Jobs did it to me again. Uh, Jobs told him it was $500 and he got 250
1: Wow. And this is before they started Apple together. Oh, no, no. This is after. This is a long time after. Uh, And, and, you
0: know, Woz said, you know, I really don't care. He said, because of jobs, I've made a lot of money, much more than I ever thought I would at that. And I said, and he must have had a better need
2: for it than I did. Wow. Wow.
1: What a feeling guy. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Did... Jobs, come and tell you that he was gonna leave Atari and go start Apple. Yeah. Like how? How did that happen? Well, he asked me to be his first investor, fifty thousand dollars for a third
0: of Apple, and I just said no, which I've <laughs> kind of regretted. And uh, but that's okay. Don made a mistake with Apple too. So <laughs> well, it was of, really a, a thing where I actually think if I'd said yes, the world would maybe have been a slightly different place because. Mike Markkula, who did the first investment, was also a very hands-on mentor. Mm-hmm. And he basically turned jobs into an actually acceptable CEO that I probably wouldn't have done. Yeah, I think I've heard <laughs> you
1: refer to him as a Ho Chi Minh-looking guy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
2: and remember, Markkula was the first president of Apple. Of
1: Apple. Yeah.
2: Uh, Markkula had worked for Don Valentine, right? Correct. Yep. And uh, And the story is that Don sent Markala over to talk to Steve. Well, I sent Steve to John. Don <laughs> sent Steve <laughs> it's a pinball to Pinball game here. <laughs> wow. wow.
1: David, can you just catch us up on the timeline moving through the mid 70s, sort of what happens in 75, yeah. 76, and let's get to what the next financing would look like for, uh, yeah. uh, for Atari as a company?
2: So Sequoia and Don invested in 75. Right. Then in 76, you end up selling the company. How, how did that happen? we were far down the design path of the 2600.
0: We knew that we had to one, build a new factory, two, that it was going to be a highly driven by fourth quarter sales. Hmm. And we just knew that we didn't have enough capital. And so we started down the path of taking Atari public. Hmm. And we had an S1 drafted up and everything that, and then the market kind of did a hiccup he said, maybe not. So we went down, so we said, okay, we'll see if we can get a corporate partner. When we uh, started down that path, Don says, hey, why don't you go talk to Warner people? And the, the Warner people came out and said, that's kind of interesting and what have you. And maybe, maybe what we can do is we can do a structure where we buy it and uh, you guys make all the money and do all the stuff, you know, and, you know, it was... You know, we were young and dumb. I had a lot of hay coming out of my shirt, and <laughs> what have you. And and so they send the Warner corporate jet to pick us up at the San Jose airport and we climb on board. And of course, just to really do starstruck, they stopped in in uh, Sun Valley and picked up Clint Eastwood and Sandra Locke.
1: What? On and the jet? Wow. On the jet.
0: Wow. And so we're... We're flying to New York on the Warner Jet with
1: Clinton and his girlfriend. And <laughs> wow. <laughs> that didn't come up in any of the research. Oh, really? No.
0: No, yeah. Well,
1: and then uh,
0: we get picked up at the airport and a limo drops us off at the Waldorf Astoria side entrance. That's where the, huh.
2: the, the VIPs go. The
0: VIPs go. We go up and we're in a a suite of rooms that has a library and a pool room and a kitchen. And I mean, it's basically a 5,000-square-foot apartment that we're in, you know, and, you know.
2: And it's the Warner Corporate Apartment. Yeah, and there are
0: three of us, Joe, Gene Lipkin, and myself, and we're there, and
2: you realize you're
0: being played a little bit, but you don't mind it, because it's kind of cool. Yeah.
1: There is something very nice about getting sold to by someone who is an excellent salesperson. Exactly.
0: So the next morning we meet for breakfast and go into Warner's conference room and we start talking about deals and deal structures and what have you.
1: And and can you give us a sense for the size of Atari's business at this point, revenue or profit or any anything you can recall? It's
0: probably close to 40 million, 45
1: mm-hmm. in revenue. In
2: revenue. But this is all in the in the arcade business, right? And you're about to enter No, we we were doing home Pong. Oh, okay. You're doing Home Pong, but not the 2600 Correct. yet. Got it. I didn't realize, actually, that you had marketed home single game
1: consoles. Oh, yeah. Consoles. There were two big dials, right? That you right. could sort of grab yeah. and each each player would twist them to move the paddle. Uh, yeah.
0: So, anyway, we'd gotten to a few sticking points, what have you. Hadn't quite shaken hands. We were invited over to Steve Ross's for dinner he has a 5th avenue apartment on the top floor top three floors and of course there was a screening of outlaw josie wales oh yeah for wow. clint and sandra oh, wow. and us
1: amazing wow
2: talk about being sold to <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> kind of like this life
0: so uh, at the end of of the day we kind of shook hands on a on a
1: proposed deal Wow. And so that, if I read correctly, was a $28 million all cash offer to the shareholders of Atari. And it wasn't
0: all cash. There were some debentures involved. And that was done as much for tax reasons as anything because, you know, you you wouldn't have to pay tax on all at once. Got it. Right. It's cheaper. But in addition to that, there was a huge payout. Like there was a 10% bonus pool. So we. Personally, we'd get a big taste of the success of Atari.
2: Oh, like, a, like an earnout, out essentially. Correct. Oh, wow. Yeah.
1: Huh. Which, this which, was
2: before startups learned that uh, big companies always structure the earnouts outs uh, <laughs> in their favor. Oh, yeah. do they ever. <laughs> oh, you wrote the playbook in so many ways.
1: Which of those ended up being more meaningful for you, the bonus pools or the actual one-time transaction? That's actually hard to say because what I ended up doing is I
0: hypothecated the bonus pool to get additional capital for
1: Chuck E. Cheese. Uh, so this is an excellent lead-in to, okay, a few of us who had like looked into this before knew that you are also the founder of Chuck E. Cheese, which when you, the first time you learned that you know, your, your mind's blown and you got Tweety Birds spinning around your head. The thing that I didn't know until really diving in is you started Chuck E. Cheese as a part of Atari and then bought it from Warner's to spin it back out. Correct. Take us through that.
0: Okay. The idea before Warner was there is I felt, we were selling these coin operated games for 2000 bucks and in their life, they'd do 30 to 50,000 in coin drop. It didn't take rocket science to say I'm on the wrong side of this transaction, (laughs) but I didn't want to compete with the operators that were putting them in bars and restaurants. And I didn't want to compete for locations, for arcades and malls and what have you. So I said, I'm going to have to create my own location. Mm -hmm. And so I said, okay, if I'm going to be building a big arcade, what's my best draw? And I said, well, we've got to have food. And what the food needs to be is pizza, because there's a wait time, ideal time for uh, that.
2: Then, the most successful- time. Pe- Ideal time to go play the games while you're waiting for the pizza. Yeah.
0: Yeah. The most successful pizza parlor in the Bay Area was a thing called Pizza and Pipes, where they had a deconstructed Wurlitzer Theater organ all over uh, the place. Hmm. And so, There'd be an organist and you'd see the drums going and they put lights on the various things so huh. that it was kind of a show. Yeah. And I thought to myself, okay. I've seen this before. <laughs> I, 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 can, I can do something like this. It turns out that I'm, I was going to take my daughters to Disneyland. I was trying to get some ideas about what I could do that wasn't a Wordless or Theater organ but had the same marketing. And we went to the Tiki Room and I said, "Oh, my engineers can do this, and we can replicate it till the cows come home." Yeah, and so that became the working prototype for Chuck E. Cheese, and uh, you know, in terms of concept, and and we literally opened the first one three weeks after we closed the Warner deal. Wow, was it in San Jose? It was in San Jose. It was in an old brokerage house. It was five thousand square feet, and the day we opened, we knew it was too small. You know, the typical pizza parlor was a five hundred square feet, maybe a thousand. You know, and this was five thousand, and yet it was way too small. Wow!
2: And did did the first one have? I mean, my memories of Chuck E. Cheese are the whole elaborate system with the tickets and the prizes and all all the animatronics, the the show every half hour. hour. Was that all there in the beginning?
0: Most of it most of it. I always felt that the right way to market it was we would survey the cost of a large pizza. We'd then up that by fifteen percent and then give tokens that if valued at twenty five cents would look like we were fifteen to twenty percent cheaper.
1: Ah. so you would just bundle in effectively some some starter gameplay with the pizza. Exactly. Oh, man. Was Atari creating the games that were in Chuck E. Cheese then? Partially. We would we would buy from anybody. Yeah. Know, like we bought
0: ski balls and things like that from huh. others. Huh. But uh, it was off to the races. Okay. I, well, so, it, you want me to tell you the deal I got from Warner?
1: Desperately, yeah. Yeah. They,
0: they said, you know, I, we were, I was talking about expanding it at a budget meeting. And they said, hey, I don't think we want that. And I said, "Really, it's really good business." I said, "I'll buy it." They said, "How much? How much you want to pay?" I said, "I don't. I don't know." I said, "I'm going to really have to work at this." And I ended (laughs) up. The
1: carny wheels are turning.
0: (laughs) So I got it for half a million bucks.
1: How many hundred thousand
0: dollars a year for five years?
1: Oh, they let you pay it over five years, no interest.
0: No interest.
2: Wow! And how many locations did you have at that point? Just the one. Oh, just the one. Okay.
0: But that one threw off seven hundred thousand dollars of cash flow annually.
2: <laughs> you assume the corporate finance department at Warner didn't uh, give well, this. A, I mean, they a once clearly over. just
1: didn't <laughs> didn't believe in it. I mean, yeah, they didn't believe in it. Also, you were just the king of payback periods and cash flows. Exactly. Well, that's when you don't have cash, you got to think that way. Yeah. Yeah. What year is this that you, you, you buy it for 500 K uh, 77, 77, or at least fi- it's the, the year that you start five payments of, of 100 K. So that's in 77 over the next, I don't know, decade, decade and a half. Chuck E cheese has close to 300 locations that you've opened Two fifty. 250. 250, 125 company stores, 125,
0: uh, franchises, and they sold it to Brock hotel. To, to who? Brock Hotel.
1: Brock Hotel. What did that transaction look like? It was a bad deal for me.
0: I'd taken the company public. I made more money on Chuck E. Cheese than I did on on Atari, hmm. but I did it through selling of stock going on. But the company, the 1983 was when the, the video game crash. video That's games right. kind of did, mm-hmm. and Chuck E. Cheese was was hit by that a little bit. huh? And so I had hired a new president of Chuck E. Cheese and started really seriously campaigning a sailboat, i.e. screwing off. <laughs> 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 and, and I might add, in 1977 I got married again. And you know, once I had sold the company to Atari, it took a little bit of the fire out of my belly, so...
1: S- sold Atari to Warner. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And so I got married. I was spending a lot of time wooing and wedding my my bride, and then we'd hang out and, you know, it was, you know, got the big house and did a remodel and, you know, all, all the stuff you do when you have a lot of cash. And <laughs> when I was campaigning the sailboat, I won the Transpac Newport to Hawaii um, wow. in 1983.
1: That's a it's a big sailboat race. You're t- you're talking to someone who doesn't. I, I'm not a big. Oh, uh, no. Yeah, so it, This is like a very, well-known very well race. known
0: sailboat race. It's it's basically longer running the America's Cup. Huh. Wow. But it's considered to be not quite America's Cup because it's mostly downhill.
1: Is it? What is it? The wind is always at your back or something. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah.
0: So, so you want a boat that is very flat bottomed. They can get up and surf. You, you you fly spinnakers all all day long, but it doesn't point upwind at all. Hmm. You know, and the America's Cup, you have to be an all around boat. I see. And, instead of what they call transpac competitors, are called sleds. <laughs> 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 That's it. great. But anyway, I won it in 1983. Congratulations! And the minute I hit land, I get this call. We're going to miss our projections and lose money in in the third quarter. Oh, wow. And you're a public company at this. point. And we're a public company. You know what happens is is you know when you lose money. I had uh, a couple of you know lines of credit out there, and that violates covenants, and it just starts to create a shitstorm. So yeah. to get out of that. I ended up
2: selling. Hmm. Uh, wow, not there for was, a lot of money, but it's okay. There was, <laughs> <yeah>. um, <laughs> There was another company, I mean, you've started so many companies in the years since and continue to, but there was one more company we want to talk about before we move on to uh, acquisition category here that came out of Chuck E. Cheese that you ended up selling to George Lucas. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I had a project called Cadabroscope.
0: And what I wanted to do is create computer-aided animation. And I felt that doing tweens and things like that, that the technology was good enough, and uh, we created some pretty good software. But the the computers were so crappy in those days. I mean, it was taking forty eight hours to render a complete frame. I mean, you know, and half the time the computer had bombed before it finished. So. You know, if you got one frame a week, you were really rocking. And this was with, with a Vax 780, which was the go-fast scientific computer at the time.
1: And these frames are 640 by 480 or less? No, they
0: were. They were um, no, they were. They were 640 by 480. Hmm. Yeah. One a week. One a week. Wow. And there's not a business. Imagine there. A Toy Story in one <laughs> frame a week.
1: <laughs> well, I'll imagine it in like 2065.
0: Yeah. So I ended up selling my software to George Lucas when when Chucky got into trouble. Mm-hmm. I was scrambling for cash. And so, in some ways, I like to joke and say I I founded Pixar, <laughs> technically, but George Lucas took it and did it. And while I while at CadabraScope. Which was I sh- the name of the technology. That you yeah. yeah. I showed Steve Jobs. He came over and, I, and he was oh very gosh. fascinated. Wow. With it. And I told him about some of the problems we were having. Da, 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 da. And so he came to me when he was offered Pixar. And I said.
1: Mm. From George Lucas.
0: Yeah. And I said, the big key is render time. If you can solve the render time problem, it's a good deal. And what I hadn't realized is he'd figured out how to do a render farm so where you where you basically atomize the that? problem and and get a whole bunch of different computers to work on it that was the first render farm that ever existed wow wow anyway that's
1: so cool <laughs> there's fun acquired history too cuz pixar was our first our first episode. I think we dove into the research and you know we were excited to find out that Steve Jobs' Pixar came from George Lucas at, at Lucasfilm and what a cool story that was. Yeah. And here we are 100 episodes later deeper. <laughs> <laughs> getting the you know even deeper origin story. It's just it's really horrible. cool. Yeah. Wow. Super cool. All right. Let's go into uh, our section after History and Facts. And this is an illustrious, amazing History and Facts. What we tend to talk about now is what would have happened otherwise? And, and the way that I want to frame this on this episode is what if Atari was never started? How do you think this crazy, enormous video game industry that we have today? I'm sure you've thought about this before. Like there's one view of it that it wouldn't exist at all. And that, you know, prob- probably not true. There's another view that is uh, it would be no different than it is today, which is also probably not true. So wh- what do you think is the, the middle there?
0: I think that there's a 90% probability that there would have been a video game post the 6502 microprocessor. I think that the technology had progressed point where it was pretty simple. The secret sauce that I provided is to figure out how to do it with with state machine technology, which wasn't an obvious thing to most engineers. You know, and I think that was that was my unique contribution that is far enough out of the mainstream that it may never have happened or it made have. You, you just never know. There's, yeah. there's a lot of, I always say that we are running down the hallway of a, of a, uh, of a hotel and you're checking all the doors and sometimes, you know, there's a broom closet and some, most of the time it's a regular room, but every once in a while there's a, there's a ballroom mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and, and You're not there alone. There are many people running down those same streets. Yeah. And uh, I think it's extremely arrogant to think that uh, you were definitive in in
2: something. I read somewhere. I don't know if it's true. I I think this was after you left Atari, after the acquisition, that there was potentially a deal on the table for Atari to be the U.S. manufacturer and distributor for the Nintendo Entertainment System, for the Famicom. Uh, can you can you say? Or do you
0: know anything about how that? I just know that that was an opportunity, and uh, it was turned down.
2: Wow, that would have been a very different, uh, very different story. <laughs> so uh,
0: I want to add one thing that about the Transpac, because another important thing happened over the chart table, four in the morning. We did the rough for ETAC, which was the foundation for. Navigation systems, you know, yeah. if you have a mapping system in your car or on your iPhone, mm-hmm. it's yeah. all based on the technology we created.
2: Wow! That's what, and uh, I think I remember reading in the research that at ETech, which is one of the companies you created that did navigation technologies, uh, you had a an arrow based on the Space Invaders. That's arrow correct. Yeah, for the car, and still to this day, any navigation, you know, Google Maps, whatever, like you're an arrow if Whoa. you're the car, and it's because of that, right? Yeah. It's kind of fun stuff. That's
1: awesome. Pretty well, cool. What happened to ETAC?
0: Sold it to News Corp, who sold <laughs> it to Sony, who sold it to... Um, <laughs> TeleAtlas or NapTag? TeleAtlas. Oh,
1: was, yeah. Wow. Oh, how these things uh, find their way through history. Uh
2: earlier, earlier this season, uh, so it all comes back around.
1: <laughs> One other question before moving on um, is Atari pioneered video games in, in in so many senses but is not relevant today. H- how could Atari have traversed the waves that came over the next few decades and been what Nintendo became, in, especially in the United States?
0: It all comes down to management. The company never had a, a, a strong sense of self. In fact, I think Atari is maybe the only company in the world in which the market leader abandoned its market. Can you imagine that? But it did. And, and the sale to Jack Trammell, you know, it was just a total cluster. This ep- is
1: Warner sold it off? Yeah. Huh.
0: They just didn't have a feeling for it. I mean, the executives they put into Atari were all record guys. They didn't realize
2: they were record player guys as well. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so they were well they were an east coast company I mean like we covered on our last episode uh, it was just like Fairchild like an east coast corporation running a west coast technology firm in that wrong. day and age just it, just <laughs> yeah. it just didn't work it just didn't work and they and, and Ray Kassar
0: totally screwed up the corporate culture hmm. like we went from not allowing executives to have reserved parking spots because mm-hmm. I felt that hey having the workers pass an empty slot with you know vice president was just an us versus them trope totally and and i said i want this i want us to be as egalitarian as possible and yeah i'm going to make a little bit more money but you know i've got more responsibility and you know da 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 yeah. but we all are in the same cafeteria we're all hanging out together you know When we have a beer bust on the back dock, we're all there, you know. And we went from that to a private executive dining room by a four-star chef to, you know, limos and reserve parking spots and all kinds of us versus them tropes that was just not Atari.
3: Hmm.
2: The irony is now in Silicon Valley, there's a private dining room with four-star Michelin chefs. For everybody, everybody. <laughs> and everybody takes yeah. Uber Blacks to work, and like <laughs> and yeah. the company pays for all of it. That's
1: as it should be. Yeah. Well, oh. our next segment that we we typically do is acquisition category. So we we decide, you know, and there's there's very clear cut and easy uh, episodes where you know the company bought it. Either it was a people acquisition, technology, product, business line. It was for an asset. In this case, I think what's coming out is. Warner didn't really know why they bought it, and then that led to some of the kind of falling apart later. H- how would you characterize why they bought the company and what it was for?
0: I've often thought that Steve Ross, who was suffering from prostate cancer, a virulent one, had a very clear idea of what Atari was. When he got sick, I think the record guys didn't you know, in a very significant way. And that's where it kind of came off the rails.
1: Mm-hmm. Hmm. All right. Well, normally here after category, we would go into grading. Nolan, we will take your color on everything so far, both on Warner buying Atari and uh, uh, you buying Chuck E. Cheese back from Atari and growing that into what it was. We will take your color there as, as our grades and finish up here. Nolan, thank you so much.
0: You know, before we close up, I got to tell you what I'm doing now. Please, please. AI driven board games. I did a deep dive on the Amazon Echo and the Google Home system Mm -hmm. and the AI under it and the speech recognition and everything and became mesmerized. Hmm. And I thought to myself, this is a game platform that nobody knows about. And so let me do some board games that you can talk to Hmm. and that will answer. And so now we have St. Noir, which you can go into at Amazon right now, buy the board game, then download the St. Noir app from your uh, Amazon Echo. We're not on Google Home. We will be after the first of the year. Yeah. And you can play a murder mystery in which you're in the creepy town of St. Noir (laughs) and there are 12 creepy people, one of which is a murderer. Oh, that's fun. And the townspeople have to tell the truth
1: oh and it's like the, mafia or werewolf but kinda yeah
0: and but, but the uh, perpetrator lies oh, that's And so great. the game is interviewing everybody and finding out where they were on the night of the murder and who they saw and what they did and various things and find out who's... Is it it
2: multiplayer or single player or both?
0: I always play with three or four people and Mm. we we decide and talk about things. But there's the board game and it's gorgeous. And I suggest that everybody that's listening to this should
2: buy six or seven, particularly for Christmas. Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) Well, if only you could figure out how to put a quarter slot on the Echo, then that would be perfect. Well, you know, when you sell a bunch of paper
0: for 40 bucks. That's almost <laughs> as good. <laughs> that's also, maybe even better. <laughs> well,
1: there's one other trend here that you're on that I think is brilliant. I mean, the, of course, AI-driven is interesting. Um, Next-generation gaming is, is interesting. But the most popular emerging podcast category is true crime and this notion that sort of like you could have interactive gamified true crime is it, really cool we're, not to we're actually it. working on one of those
2: oh awesome oh, cool not to mention board games yeah I'll, I'll, board I'll, games. I'll accept when when you say true crime i'm not sure that it's going to be true <laughs> <laughs> yeah
1: nolan thank you so much my thank pleasure it yeah. was fun
2: this has been a true honor uh we're so glad you joined us and uh what a great moment in acquired's history too to bring it full circle with pixar our very first episode to be talking about the origins of silicon valley and um you know you guys played such an incredible part in that so thank you so much for sharing the stories with us
0: well i appreciate
2: it
1: well a huge thank you to our sponsor for this episode zoom info if your company wants to supercharge its ability to find acquire and grow customers While also becoming more efficient, it is a no-brainer to start using ZoomInfo. And now they're making their automated go-to-market playbook available for free for anyone to try. Head on over to acquired.fm slash ZoomInfo to see this go-to-market playbook. And when you get in touch, just tell them that Ben and David at Acquired sent you. Thanks, ZoomInfo. Listeners, if you aren't subscribed and you like what you hear, you totally should. And listeners... We will see you next time. We'll see you next time.